Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live is the author of a couple of books, but that's not all he does. He's an, he's an activist. He, he speaks up. He's working on a documentary uh, about food right now with the, the makers of that acclaimed basketball documentary called Hoop Dreams. His newest book is called The Value of Nothing, How to Reshape Market Society and Redefine a Democracy. His earlier book, Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System. Please welcome Raj Patel for the rest of life. Good to see you again. How have your books changed your life? Um, I eat better. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I grew up in a, in a convenience store surrounded by cigarettes and uh, sweets and crisps. Chips, I'm told, is how you pronounce it here. Um, but a range of uh, food that is incredibly bad for you. And having researched how people around the world are eating better and the fights they have to go through in order to do that, I'm a lot more conscious about what I eat now and where it comes from and how I make it than I used to be. One of the uh, interesting issues that comes up, of, of course, in your books is the idea of the food distribution, how food gets from here to there, how it's controlled by a limited number of interests, uh, and how possibly could, to change that, how that affects you know, what it is we eat. I was speaking with a food writer in England not long ago, and he, he said that uh, in England, 10 years ago, three quarters of the food was grown on their island. Uh, nowadays, it's 50%. And as, as the years go on and there's competing interest for the food itself, uh, it's going to change. He said people like sustainable food. They might not be able to get sustainable local food as much as they want. Well, I mean, it's true. We, we do now live in a sort of globalized world. Um, though I have to say, that's not always a bad thing. I mean, you know, 30 years ago, the British national cooking strategy was to boil something for an hour um, and, and then serve it. You know, th- th- so now that, that there is better international cuisine in Britain, I think more people are happy. Um, that said, um, the, I mean, you're, you're right that, that, that globalization has made it harder for us to eat sustainably. But the truth of it is, if we're going to eat in the future, if we're going to eat in the 21st century, we need to be eating with fewer food miles. We need to be eating with less carbon in our food. That means less fertilizer, less um, you know, abundance of water. And the best way of doing that is by eating locally and sustainably. And so I often get irked by the argument that organic cannot feed the world, wherein when you look at the, the data and the world we're up against with climate change and with uh, you know, increasing concerns around large cities, the only way that we're going to eat in the 21st century ultimately will be organic and sustainably. There was uh, uh, somebody who lives on an island, uh, I think Guernsey or something, who said, uh, we've been s- local fours for all time. <laughs> you know, we have to grow what we get here, and we have to grow what we eat, and, and that's where we get it. And, and yet, when we do import food from around the world, there are the costs. There are the costs of, uh, of the fossil fuels to get it there, the fossil fuels that, uh, that create the fertilizers. Right, and, and, and that's... I mean, I mean, the reason we have fertilizer bombs, for example, is because it takes a tremendous amount of energy to make these fertilizers. But what people don't often know is that there are other ways of farming without 
these fossil fuel fertilizers. You can, I mean, I just got back from Cuba, for example, which uh, because of the blockade has very limited or used to be quite fairly limited access to fossil fuel. And so they've come up with other ways of growing food. And for example, they plant uh, legumes, they, they plant beans in between other crops and the beans fertilize the soil uh, as well or better than inorganic fertilizer. So there are ways of farming that don't require this sort of industrial um, fossil fuel-based agriculture. Uh, the trouble is that fossil fuel-based agriculture is subsidized by the fact that we don't pay for climate change. And so it appears that fertilizers are cheap, whereas in fact, you know, we, we could trace the drought at the moment and we can trace these big climatic events to really pay back for the, the way that we've been using fossil fuels abundantly for the past 200 years, and now we're paying for it. Uh, what we need to be doing now is moving away from that, and, and Cuba, oddly, in some of its agriculture, offers an example of how. Yeah. Uh, would Monsanto get involved in Cuba if it had the chance? I, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I, I think Monsanto would get involved anywhere where there was a chance for it to make money. That's the way all companies behave. And oddly, Cuba is now investigating things like genetically modified crops. Uh, since 2008, I believe, Raul Castro opened the door to anything and everything that would feed Cuba's people. And genetically modified crops are part of that mix as far as the government is concerned. Um, so I think, yes, Monsanto, if there were money to be made, would head to Cuba just as readily as they head everywhere else. But I don't think that that's necessarily a good thing. And, and you see this, uh, and you don't see it as a good thing because... Well, I, I, I think it's a bad idea to have one corporation both control the seed supply and the pesticide supply. I think genetically modified crops are a bad idea because if you look at their yields, you see that, that they're very poor. I mean, you, you, they, they do not terribly well compared to conventional and very badly compared to uh, the kinds of agroecological techniques that we see around the world. Uh, so I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not convinced that genetically modified crops are... Uh, necessarily the way we should be feeding the world in the future. And in general, I think if you like free markets and if you like exchange, then having one or two companies running the show is always a bad idea. And I think one of the things we've seen recently in the past years since the financial crisis of 2008, 2007, is that in fact, free markets is kind of a misnomer. They're more sort of manipulated markets by those who have the wherewithal to do that. Well, that's it. I mean, we're we're sort of suckled on this idea of the, the 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 free and free markets is about you know us being having liberty of some kind. But when you look at the, the, the concentration of power in markets now, we, we live in the anti-market. We live in, a, in fact, our banking system now is more concentrated now than it was at the beginning of this crisis. Uh, so I, I think that, yes, markets are a terrific thing. We just don't happen to live near one. Uh, I mean, <laughs> well, except, of course, the wonderful Berkeley Farmer's Market that's right outside our door. Which is a fantastic example of a market where lots of buyers and lots of sellers and no one person controls, con you know, controls the, the buying or selling of anything. That's the kind of market I think we need to aim for, and we're very far from it. You, you talk about a report from Oxfam about uh, coffee and how that is in, involved in the power of, of, of food production and the food chain and uh, sort of the economics of, of the coffee business. And not only is it directly related to the economic well-being of the family of the farmer, in, in one particular part of the world. In another part of the world, say Vietnam, where government can direct agricultural policy, the farmers will switch on a dime from, from, uh, from rice to coffee 
you know, to suddenly change the global market supply. Well, and again, most people have this idea of farmers kind of sucking their finger and putting a finger up to the wind and saying, well, what shall I plant this year? You know, chewing on straw and just sort of pondering and, and figuring out just you know, the feeling that this, you know, feeling it in their water that this year is going to be barley. Um, but, but that's not how farmers work. I mean, f farmers are business people and they organize their expectations and they depend on a, a certain set of signals from the market. And again, it gets back to who it is that controls that market. If you have one large corporation like Nestle, for example, one of the world's largest buyers of coffee, when they can concentrate market power to the extent that they do, it's very, it's very hard for farmers to be able to um, make free decisions about what it is they plant. They plant what it is that they have a market for. And if one corporation is controlling that market, that's what they plant. I mean, just to give you a sense, some of these markets are incredibly con uh, concentrated. The world's most popular soft drink, for example, is tea. Uh, and the world's, uh, la uh, the, 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 the world's packaged tea market is controlled really by one company, by Unilever, that controls 95% of the world's packaged tea market. Uh, so you know, farmers in, in that world have very little choice about who they sell to. Uh, and although Unilever is trying to be sustainable and uh, uh, trying to do the right thing by its farmers, the fact is they're a monopoly. And that, that, that doesn't leave much freedom for farmers uh, one way or another. You point out that Africa is, is one of the places in the world where other countries are buying, <coughs> excuse me, buying land. For instance, uh, Korea is, is buying land to grow crops for its people, uh, you know, halfway around the world. That, uh, and how is this changing the economics of, of the local culture? And, and do you see it as a source for conflict later in the century? Well, it's a source of conflict now. And it's very interesting to see, I mean, I, I was reading the Euro European newspapers on, you know, China buying up large tracts of land and uh, Brazil going in there. And the, the, the tone is, you won't believe what China is doing in Africa. They're doing what we did. <laughs> uh, and there's sort of strange outrage. Uh, but uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it has been called the new colonialism because if essentially what's going on is large uh, financial powers, whether they're sovereign wealth funds or whether it's folk from Wall Street going in, buying up not just land. I mean, Africa's got tons of land, but no one's buying the Sahara, right? They're buying land with water, land with mineral rights, land with oil, uh, and then booting people off that land who have been there for, for generations. And already it's causing a great deal of conflict. And the worst of it is that Often this policy is sold as development. It's you know, the way of the future. But the people who are worst off often are the women who are working on that land who have no claim to the land and no claim to the water underneath it. And a recent World Bank study, the World Bank very keen to, for this to happen, um, had rather begrudgingly to admit that uh, they couldn't find a case in Africa where women were better off as a result of this. So it's, it's a disaster. And what kind of conflict do you envision that would, would come over this land? I mean, will there be a, a time when uh, the sort of the, uh, the, the people of Africa will say, we want the neo-colonists out of here? Or will it be other countries who will come in and say, 
we want to have the crops in, uh, from this irrigated land. It's, it's conflict at almost every level. I mean, you're seeing um, governments sparring with their own people uh, because in order for land to be sold, someone needs to sell it. And usually it's a government official who has some claim on it. Uh, so there's tension between governments and the people who are actually living on the land. Um, but increasingly, I imagine what one can see conflicts between governments over who it is that controls water jurisdiction. You can see conflicts between different groups who, ha who are vying for the ability to sell off their own you know, the land beneath their feet. But you're seeing conflict, you know, even within the household as a result of, of women, for, for example, not being able to earn their living by carrying water, for example, and that results in all kinds of tensions even within the home right now. So it's a disaster at almost every level. Does your family still have the corner shop? Oh, yeah. yeah. Have, have they changed what they carry because of you? No. Um, they... <laughs> They just don't eat it as much, uh, and 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 and, I, and and it's a great question because I I feel like although a lot of the the companies that are shifting stuff through the stores, you know, the the, the Mars Corporation and Unilever and Procter and Gamble, they're trying to greenwash what it is that they sell, um, and, and occasionally you, know, you you might find a small sort of stack of locally produced sandwiches. Um, in general, there's there's not a whole lot uh, in in. I mean, I, I feel like I've affected my family through their eating habits, but. To change the way the economy works, that's going to take more than me. I think it's going to take a lot of people. Do they sell your books, at least? No. <laughs> <laughs> it just—it it doesn't sit well next to the pornography. Um, so. oh. <laughs> and is that what keeps the little local grocery stores going? <laughs> no, it's—it's it, it, the—I um, I don't know whether I can say this, but it's, it's, it, the, the British—the British term for a shop like this is that it sells fags and mags. Um, so it sells cigarettes and magazines, uh, and the uh, so that you know, th those are the that's the kind of the cash cow. And There's so a um, a sort of middle brow book on food or the economy probably doesn't sit well. In. <laughs> Could be one of those free books with the British newspaper that goes out wrapped in plastic. <laughs> There's a uh, John Lan uh, Lanchester has written a, a novel called Capital, and and in it is a description of such a corner shop, and one of the sons who works in the shop has reached the point where he's making rude remarks to the customers who buy some of those magazines. <laughs> I was always... Much to the dismay of the father. Well, when I was... I worked in that convenience store when I was from, from, from a very young age, and when someone wants to buy a magazine like that, we don't say anything. It was my... I was told never to say anything, put it in a paper bag, and take the money very demurely, and that's what I did. So how does uh, Oscar Wilde fit in to uh, your idea of the value of, of nothing? Um, well, I mean, Oscar Wilde has, has this line that nowadays people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Uh, and that's, I mean, it, it, whether it's in the work of food or in the broader economy, I think a, a lot of what my work is about is trying to reconnect us to ways of valuing food, of valuing our human interactions that have been discounted by the way that we, that we live today. So if we're thinking about food justice, the, the, some of the, the worst paid people in this country are involved in the food business. Um, the two worst paying jobs of, I think, uh, uh, dish, uh, dishwashing and uh, table bussing are both in the food service industry. Farm workers get paid even a little bit more than that. And farm 
farm workers are paid atrociously. So we're very disconnected in this country from the value in our food and the, when we eat out the value of, of that experience. Uh, and I think part of what food justice work is about and part of what you know, social justice work is about is reconnecting us with one another so we, so we do get a def different way of being able to value that work and start to make some bigger changes. What would you like to see happen? Well, I mean, I certainly think a minimum wage is a very, very good start in the food service world and in um, uh, and in the uh, in farm work. Um, the National Restaurant Association, the other NRA, uh, is a very big <laughs> lobbyist in uh, in Washington, and one of the reasons why people in the food service industry have such low wage jobs is because they uh, you know, the NRA has been lobbying incredibly hard to prevent those wages even reaching you know five bucks an hour. You know, so. But part of that also, in a way, as uh, Emmett Kelly would say, is, is, is also us. Because if we go to a restaurant and we pay a certain price, sometimes there's an aversion you know, to paying a higher price for a certain food. Oh, we could fix that at home or you know, some sort of thing. In uh, San Francisco, there's now a little uh, bit added to the bill for uh, the workers' health. Mm -hmm. And some... People who eat in the restaurants object to that sometimes, you know, you know, but people become accustomed to it. But it, but it does come down to the people who use these services, who buy this food, who say, do I want to pay the price that will give somebody a just income? I think that's right. But I think also we overestimate how much choice and freedom we have at the moment. Uh, I mean, if we're working... You know, every hour God sends uh, in order to be able to hang on to health insurance that's increasingly you know, expensive. And we're uh, running from pillar to post to be able to pay off uh, an education for our kids, or we're trying to save, God forbid, for retirement. Um, then uh, the, we're working so hard that the, the time that we have to cook and to enjoy and to have joy is limited. Uh, and so often we find ourselves engaging in these transactions with very little sort of notion or, and ability to connect. And I think that's why one of the wonderful reasons why Alice, uh, Alice Waters is here today and uh, what, one of the, the ways that she's encouraging us to think is to slow down. Uh, now, this, is, this may sound like a sort of middle-class thing of, well, you know, if you can have your olive oil and red wine, you're fine. But, but actually, slowing down is a justice issue. And the originators of slow food in Italy were incredibly interesting people. They were a little bit to the left of the Italian Communist Party. Um, and uh, they had this idea that really, if, if everyone, if we were going to democratize pleasure, then you need two things. You need time and you need money. And so they organized, and they organized uh, agricultural workers, one of the lowest paid people in Italy, and they fought for a two-hour lunch break so that they could actually enjoy the, the, not only higher wages, but the fruits of those wages. And I think what we need to be realizing here is, yes, it's about us, but it's also about the way we work, about the rhythms of our working life in this country. We work much harder uh, and are less happy than some of our, uh, you know, our, our developed country brethren in, in other parts of the world. So yes, it's about us, but it's also about the circumstances that make us. And often, I mean, I think the, the big message in Stuffed and Starved, I think, is this, that often we we think we choose our food, but the way we live today, it's more like the opposite. That our food is, you know, that we are made for our food. Our food chooses us. So where does that fit into the democratic society? You've been an activist. You've been on the streets. Uh, how do you find, do you find being an author more effective at bringing about this change than leading a march? 
Uh, it, it's, it's about, I, I think that there's a role for everything here. I mean, I, I think that there's a way of when one writes, one reach, reaches an audience uh, able to take the time to reflect on, on certain things. But you need to, to march on the streets to be able to make space to think sometimes. Uh, and similarly, the documentary that I'm working on, Generation Food, with the, the director of Hoop Dreams, Steve James, that's about putting on screen some of the most inspirational stories from around the world to show that it is possible. Because right now, I know a lot of us are kind of losing hope with the way the, the world works at the moment. And to be able to show some examples of that in some very visceral ways, it, it, sometimes you need that rocket fuel to, to keep you going. So how do you help us who, who might enjoy the olive oil and the red wine? And the look no, no, I know you enjoy that too. <laughs> You know, but, but to connect it with, you know, the food justice issues at large in the world and, and, and to be aware of that. Well, I, I like the, the slow food idea that food needs to be good, clean, and fair. Uh, and that fair notion, I think, you know, when, when, when we taste food, it's not just about the taste, it's about our relationship to it. I mean, part of having good olive oil is knowing where it came from and knowing that the workers who were involved in picking those olives were treated well. And the more you know about the food and the more you're connected to it, the better it tastes. Uh, and that, I think, is one of the, the easy ways of recruiting people to a better world is through joy and pleasure. I mean, often in the left, it's sort of flagellating yourself. And it's like, oh, well, you can't do this because you know, it, 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 it's counter-revolutionary and reactionary and uh, bourgeois. But actually, enjoying food is one of the most revolutionary things you can do if you connect it to a bigger community. I like that slogan. There we are. Uh, Raj Patel, his, his two books are The Value of Nothing, How to Reshape Market Society and Redefine Democracy, just out, and then Stuffed and Starved, Stuffed, Starved, and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System. And he has a revised and expanded edition out as things change from, you know, uh, you must be kind of breathless sometimes when you take a look at the pace of change in this, in this realm. Yeah, I mean, when I originally wrote Stuffed and Starved, there were 800 million people going hungry and a billion who are overweight, and now it's a billion hungry and nearly two billion overweight. It's hard to keep up, um, but I still have hope. I mean, I, I, th I think that when I originally wrote Stuffed and Starved, there were, you know, the food movement in the US was blossoming, and now it's a real force for change. Uh, and I, even though the numbers look a little dire, I am hopeful that, that we can turn things around because there are many, many more people thinking about this than they used to be. In, in the credits to one of your books, you talk about the, the pleasures of working at a certain South African university. That was a terrific place to write a book. What, what made it special for you? Um, <laughs> because A, I was paid, and B, I didn't have to teach. <laughs> but I mean, what, what was wonderful about working at the University of KwaZulu-Natal was, I mean, a university, and, and it's rare to be able to say this now, is a space where there is, where you can do academic and intellectual work and be supported for it rather than mocked. Uh, and often, um, I mean, the tenor of debate sometimes in the US and elsewhere is very anti-intellectual. To be able to have a space where actually ideas are valued and encouraged and propelled forward is a, is a rare pleasure. And I, that's, yeah. that's the movement that's called slow thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, slow. yeah, no, absolutely. Sometimes to do a good book takes five years. God forbid five years, 10, 15. Um, and with the academic sort of treadmill now speeding up, uh, people demand publications every year or so. And sometimes slow thinking is a good thing. Raj Patel will be back later when we'll be talking with, uh, with him and with Alison Ray uh, together at this point in the, uh, in the show. Thank you very much, Raj Patel. Thank you.
This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.